Hello and welcome to Reverb, everybody. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am joined for the first time ever on the show by our co-producer, Ben Williams. Hi, Ben. How's it going? I'm doing well. Well, as we've been talking, sort of relatively well, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just to give us some context here, we are recording on March 31st, the end of the first... I guess, month of the COVID-19. Well, I guess it hasn't been quite a month yet since the quarantine and social distancing measures really took into effect properly. Is that right? I think so. I think probably about two weeks now that we've really started to think a lot about what sort of our shared immobility means, right? Yeah. As a student population, but more broadly as a, a national one, international one too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess maybe we can start out by just talking about, I mean, kind of the the dark irony of the topic that we're going to be addressing in our interview today, although I think it is timely nonetheless, is mobility. I mean, you and I are both PhD students. I guess we can maybe start out by talking a little bit about how our own mobility has been restricted or changed by the current pandemic that we're living under right now. Uh, so how about you? How how have things changed for you? Well, it's been interesting to think about the way that our social lives are so predicated on movement and to think about how, you know, social distancing has culminated in so many forms of our lives. So just Zoom meetings, there's such <laughs> limited in- intimacy that exists between fellow students, cohorts, and it doesn't allow you to sort of get the same substance from interaction so it's just interesting to think about how you know our immobility is the is an almost perverse form of solidarity that begins to arise uh, but at the same time it gets you to recognize how central being in a shared space is to intellectual work oh my god yeah well said just just for everybody who was wondering at why i was chuckling in the background there we are conducting this conversation over a zoom call right now so yeah, I, I'm really kind of fascinated by that notion of solidarity and what happens to solidarity in a time like this one that we're living through right now, where literally we are not able to be in a shared space, like you said. Uh, you kind of realize the importance of that and having to just find different ways of cultivating that solidarity, I think, has been a real challenge I mean, especially for graduate students who have been organizing elsewhere or just anybody really who's been trying to organize against food insecurity, housing insecurity, just general financial precarity. Those things, I think, are being a lot more exposed during this crisis and uh, amplified for a lot of people. And there's a sort of morbid paradox that we can't take to the streets altogether to organize or protest, you know, flood a state house to make a statement to a local elected official. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is this is kind of changing the modes of everyday life and the not just the pathways that we use to navigate our social world, but the momentum of everyday life, everything is kind of like the speed of everything feels like it's kind of been collapsed now with like taking classes and, and teaching classes online and other things like that. I don't know. What is, what has your experience been doing 
otherwise normal everyday things like taking a class online or through Zoom? Uh, it's been, like I said, different. I find myself sort of impeded in the ability to register nonverbal cues mm. in a way, right? So that that shared space and that that moment of of intimacy that often emerges in a classroom setting is it it just becomes <laughs> so strange because it feels as though you're cutting someone off or you're not really engaging in a meaningful conversation in the same way. So I think more than anything, it's just that interactive mode of a seminar style classroom that has been completely altered. But um, to go back to some of the things that you were saying, I was thinking a lot about the, the various instances of precarity that seem to be emerging and re-emerging in a state of emergency like this one. Uh, it seems to me that those disparities are just becoming so much more clear. And I was hoping we could talk a little more about that too. Like with the sort of issues that emerge in a classroom setting, those are so much different than the uh, precarity that exists for those who have been forced to continue with their mobile lives, right? We have the security and privilege of sheltering ourselves from these vectors of contagion, but right. there are so many who are part of the labor force who are grocery store workers or in factory settings or essential workers who still need to work through these very mobile existences. And because of that, they're at a greater risk. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking of not just grocery store and like factory workers, but also, I mean, obviously hospital workers, doctors, nurses, orderlies, people who clean, you know, hospital rooms and things like that, as well as like very mobile jobs or jobs that are kind of like based around mobility have also not been, I mean, able to be moved online, obviously, because their whole, like the labor value that they produce is predicated upon mobility from point A to point B. So like bus drivers, truck drivers, mail carriers, uh, gig economy people who deliver groceries and take out food and other things like that. These people's way of earning a living for sustenance is is predicated upon continuing to be able to leave the house and move <laughs> and move other people. This is just kind of ge in generally speaking to you know the the divide that we're hearing about more and more between essential and non-essential businesses and labor and other things that are being as you said kind of more clearly and starkly laid out as you know, being more precarious and more vulnerable to the kinds of crises that we might be facing more, you know, in this time of, to borrow a phrase from one of the works that we're citing, uh, bio-austerity or bioterity. So you actually referenced this article that was in, I believe it was Society in Space. It's a two-part or two-episode article called Bio-Austerity and Solidarity in the COVID-19 Space of Emergency. So I guess, could you talk a little bit about what you took from that, that article and what you, like just your general reflections on what it means in terms of society, space and place, mobility, and the current age that we're living in? Yeah, so I'm thinking about the, the sort of current measures that are being taken that are these various mandates that legitimate existence for some, allow for the continued sort of privileged and remote existence that we've talked about. But at the same time, we're 
we're really positioned in this this almost battle against this this biological entity that becomes housed within us, right? And yeah. as carriers potentially of that contagion, uh, we have to think about ourselves within this community in a sort of more actualized and real sense. But at the same time, like we are encountering uh, a different view of public spaces, right? The 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 thing that's explored here too is the sensuousness of the street, yeah. or the circulation of knowledge, of ideas, of even solidarity in the form of mass mobilization, as we metaphorically and sort of literally see it in these various movements right. is being deterred, right? So they're thinking about ideas of how we might reassemble social life and create these alternative forms of solidarity through, you know, mutual aid projects or, you know, thinking about extending ourselves and inhabiting sort of social spaces that exist outside of our our own um, sort of enclosed or sheltered lives. And I, I think uh, it relates in some ways. I read another article recently by Bruno Latour and the, the title of it is This Address Rehearsal. So he's talking about this in relation to the sort of mounting climate crisis. Yeah. And he talks about the, the time that this is occurring, right? So he's thinking about it in relation to, to Lent in particular. Yep. And I think he ends in a really powerful way, similar to the article on bioterity, which is that this has allowed for a sort of luxury to emerge, which is time for many of us, right? Time yes. to reflect and discern that which agitates, as Latour says, in all directions. And he says, and he concludes this essay with, uh, let's respect this long, painful, and unexpected fast. So I think that's a, a powerful way of thinking about how these measures and these, these regimes and mandates, while clearly terrible, you know, offer something for us in thinking and reflecting about what solidarity is in, in a space of social isolation. Wow, that's really powerful. And I think, you know, as as Latour was saying, a very necessary reflection to do based on the fact that we might have to be dealing with this in other kinds of ways in the future. I mean, this goes a little bit to what we talk about eventually in our interview with Marion Aguiar, who does research work on space, place, and mobility, which is refugee mobility. Um, and the fact that, you know, climate change has created a lot of what you might call climate refugees, people who need to leave the spaces that they're in because they're being overrun by environmental devastation. In some ways, it's it's strange because it feels like we're seeing kind of the opposite of that. Bioterity in this sense is you know, it's still a harm from without, but it forces us to stay put rather than to be mobile and to displace us. We are we are emplaced, I guess you might say, uh, uh, very forcefully. But either way, it's clear that there are forces that are operating, you know, kind of external forces that are, in this case, sociopolitical. We talk a little bit in the interview about the difference between affective and sociopolitical, I guess, sort of currents is the metaphor that we draw on there. We can we can start really noticing, I think, when we look at things like refugee crises, climate crisis, and global pandemics, the metaphor that I thought about, you know, because we use a lot of fluid and water metaphors to describe both 
I, I guess in news discourse, it's used to describe immigrant populations themselves. You know, like immigrants are often described as like floods uh, moving towards the shores or the borders of a nation. In addition, it's also used as this kind of like mobilizing tactic for getting people to understand refugee and immigrant experiences. But I also think it functions as a good metaphor for what we're observing right now or what we can take the time to, you know, in Latour's sense, kind of critically reflect on, which is the wake that is catching up with us right now. So so the metaphor that I was thinking about before talking with you today was it's kind of like if you envision America as a speedboat, which, you know, of course it would be. Of any boat, it would have to be a speedboat that's, you know, like traveling faster than is probably justifiable or warranted across a lake or some kind of body of water. And, you know, it's generating this massive wake and these currents that are coming from, you know, the speed and the force with which it is, you know, moving through the water. And right now, the COVID-19 crisis is as if we, you know, pulled back on the throttle and immediately stopped the boat. And anybody who's ever been on a boat knows that when you try to do sort of like a, a quick stop, your weight continues moving independently of you. The waves that you have or that your boat has caused to ripple across the surface of the water eventually catches up with your boat causes it to buck and sway and all of a sudden makes you aware of the fact that you are within a fluid medium that's despite the fact that you have the ability to exert some control over it it still operates independently of you <laughs> so so i've been thinking a lot about the kinds of currents that we can observe like you know the fact that there are still people who are forced to be mobile, who are forced to leave the house to make a living. They've been deemed essential by the state. You know, the fact that they still have to go into work, they still have to make meager wages, especially I'm thinking about like grocery store workers and gig economy workers. You know, when you see your mail carrier come up to your front doorstep every day, that's a current. That's a ripple of the wake that you can sort of see passing through. Yeah, I think that that's really a powerful symbol for thinking about how these different measures are being used in, in various ways. And, and it reminds me of the work by Christina Sharp. So in her, in the wake on blackness and being, she thinks about the, the various manifestations of the wakes of a traumatic incident. In particular, she's talking about slavery. Yeah. And she thinks of its insidious forms of manifestations that we see today. And I was really thinking of this this powerful metaphor that she draws on in our work as theorists, as scholars, as poets, um, or anyone really working within these uh, discourses that try and ameliorate these, these effects. So she says in response to all of this, you know, as a way to defend the, the dead or defend the dying or defend the living, she's about the hard emotional, physical, and intellectual work that needs to be done. But I think in a moment like this, it allows us to, to, as Latour said, sort of reflect on what Sharp would call wake work means. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do in an incident like this to defend those who are forced into positions of mobility in ways that really secure our own privilege and secure our own food security? right, that secure our own uh, housing security, what, what do we do? 
what does wake work look like within all of these various currents and flows of imbalance and uh, structures of manifested power and inequality and oppression and exploitation? Yeah. What, what do you think wake work looks like? I mean, uh, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I think from my perspective, just because this is kind of what I do my research on is, you know, how rhetoric can be used to, I guess, like help make things visible to people that would otherwise remain invisible. So part of doing wake work is first getting people to see that there is a wake, like the fact that like getting to recognize what precarity really looks like because of you know the, the the conditions that we're living under right now that are forcing people to go into work and to keep going outside to keep doing that sort of essential labor that as you said rightly i think secures our privilege the people who are able to do their jobs inside remotely to podcast uh <laughs> you know over zoom and things like that i think that being able to see that and being able to raise people's consciousnesses about the fact that you know, there could be a lot of your relatives or your friends, or other people who you're close to, who you're connected to intimately within your community are being affected by this in very, very negative ways. I mean, I think at the very least, that's one thing that we are seeing from a lot of people. Like there's a heightened awareness of the precarity of our very system right now. The fact that it is I think self-evidently ill-equipped to handle, for example, like the medical crisis that's going to come most likely in the next couple of weeks already in places like New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you're seeing sort of drastic measures needed to be taken to ameliorate overcrowded hospitals, you know, to take care of housing insecure populations and things like that. So it's more visible right now, like the wake work hopefully will be easier to do because we can see that there is in fact a wake. <laughs> I think that that's one of the uh, that's one of the things that I guess more conservative pundits and other people will try to often do is to obfuscate the fact that there that actions have repercussions and that these things sort of ripple outwards i mean i guess to that end the best kind of wake work is building alternative institutions that are from my own limited perspective at least able to do community self-defense work where the state or other kinds of governing institutions are not able to so, I mean, I'm thinking of a lot of, you know, cities and activists working within those cities who have developed spreadsheets of mutual aid resources, everything from people who are willing to cook and deliver food to the elderly or other homebound folks, people who are offering up spare rooms or rooms that would otherwise be for rent that they're giving to people for free who need a place to stay, just trying to do that work of connecting people with the basic means of survival at this point, I think is good, is a good start. And then, you know, what I hope to see at least is that these kinds of very locally based solidarity measures that are able to be conducted from afar in some ways can actually outlast this pandemic and can help us recognize the need for more local solidarity. I mean, you know, Top-down changes are nice. It, the stimulus bill is going to help a little bit for some people, but for the most part, it's hard to be optimistic about something really good coming out of the federal government as it currently stands. 
Yeah, I, I, I really appreciated what you said about making what is invisible starkly visible. And I couldn't help but think about Lauren Berlant and her mm. cruel optimism. And she talks yeah. about the genre of crisis, right? And she says that it really distorts these structural occurrences in such a way that seem shocking or exceptional or out of the norm. And what something like this draws our attention to, especially in relation to today's episode in terms of space and mobility, is the ways that you know these inequities and inequalities that exist are belied by the language or the genre of crisis in a way that makes it seem as though they are these momentary shockwaves fissuring a just system. Yes. But in fact, we're working within a system that is by its very nature unjust. Yes. And that's that's the language that I hope we continue to explore and think about by sort of denormalizing our thoughts and, and what this moment of stasis in those who have the capacity to be static in our lives rethink when it comes to these issues surrounding space and mobility. Yeah, well said. Well, I think that's a that's a great kind of segue into our interview. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and play our interview with uh, Dr. Marion Aguiar that we did. Was that probably a month ago now? Or do you remember when it was that we conducted that? <laughs> Uh, sometime in February. Okay. Right. It, it feels like forever ago right now. It feels like a different world because in many ways it, well, in many ways it wasn't. <laughs> I think to your, to your previous point, it's the only thing that's changed is our, for us maybe is kind of like our modes of socialization, but, but it feels like a very different world right now. So, all right, let's go to that interview. All right. Welcome to Reverb, everybody. My name is Alex Helberg, and I am joined uh, for the first time on the mic uh, by our co-producer, Benjamin Williams. Hi, everybody. And today we are very excited to be sitting down with a professor of literary and cultural studies at Carnegie Mellon University, Marion Aguiar. Marion, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, so we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about a series that we are doing here on Reverb on space, place, and mobility, uh, which we've touched on a little bit in previous episodes that we've done, talking about gentrification discourses and other kinds of particularly urban displacement in a previous series. But we wanted to talk a little bit more about your work, which focuses on mobility. Yes. Um, so, so for you, what does it mean to study space and mobility from a cultural studies perspective? Well, one thing about space and mobility is that we often think of them as a given. So it's not really something that it sort of exists in the background, um, the space that we're in. It's not really necessarily something that we analyze, even though we exist in it continuously. We also don't always notice mobility in our lives. We move around from day, you know, day to day. We move around from place to place, from A to B. But to think about mobility is as Tim Cresswell has written, to think about the line that exists between A and B and to sort of inhabit that line and understand it in various modes, to understand the way that it's socially constructed, to understand modes of movement, to understand the phenomenologies of movement and the moments of stasis that we have or the moments of waiting, which David Bissell talks about. All of that, you know, cultural studies helps you unpack. 
All right. So can you tell us a little bit about your current research project? How are you thinking about space, place, and mobility as concepts in your current work? Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm working on a work on refugee mobilities, and I'm thinking about the ways that refugees move in the sense that often when we talk about, or uh, scholars have talked about refugees, they've thought about either the place of origin or the, the place of destination, problems of assimilation, for example. And the part that comes in between is either a blip on that and missing, or the complete opposite, the beginning and end points are collapsed into this epic journey that's, that's in between. So I want to look at those journeys in a different kind of way and to think about how do refugees live in those places? What are their everyday lives? What are their modes of experience? How do they interrelate to the places that they are in as they move? And often those places, those border zones or those spaces of travel are seen as just something that they pass through instead and then and then place becomes the place the end that they end up so i want to go back and think about those experiences i was kind of joking and t- saying when i did this project that it was a project on planes trains and automobiles um, <laughs> because i decided right. to arrange it around modes of movement so i began with a chapter on on boats and then i decided i was going to go back to some of my earlier work which was on trains talk about the car and different kinds of ways that people move, including walking. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I ended up working on the first chapter first and in talking about maritime mobilities became interested in the the particular mobility of drift. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been working for a while on maritime migration, maritime movement, the kinds of modes of movement that take place on the water the kinds of ways that thinking about refugee mobilities on the water can challenge our understanding of how people move and allow us to rethink globalization and diasporas, not as a series of vectors, you know, point A to point B, but as something that might be moving in lines that are not so close-ended to be drifting off point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mobility is kind of, as you said, something that we probably take for granted a lot in our everyday lives because we have to move, you know, on a day-to-day basis to get where we're going, but take a lot of the ways that we get there for granted. So mobility kind of, like you said, forms that line between places, uh, between, you know, start point and end point. But but particularly, it's, it's, I'm I'm genuinely curious, what drew you particularly to refugee mobility? And like, were there any particular uh, cases in point? I mean, this is obviously something that our listeners are probably very familiar with. It comes up a lot in the news. We see lots of representations of, uh, you know, discourses around refugees, uh, migrants and immigrants. So what was it originally that that drew you to want to study that as a topical focus? Well, actually, there were two things. In in my previous work in tracking modernity, India's railway and the culture of mobility, there was a yeah. chapter on partition, which was, mm. you know, refugee experience, the partition of, of India into... Um, into India and Pakistan, and thinking about the experiences of refugees there. But then, of course, in the contemporary moment, the refugee crisis, you know, that peaked in uh, the Mediterranean crisis in 2015, the ongoing refugee crises at the border of the United States, I have for a long time been interested in the figure of the refugee 
as someone who is different than other kinds of immigrants and whose experiences need to be thought about in ways that they move in and out of the nation as immigrants do more solidly. So I was also sort of thinking about that. What I didn't understand at first was how difficult it would be to find the texts by refugees. The exception, of course, is if you go back to uh, post-World War II refugees. There is a, a fair amount of literature about that. What I found was a lot more images about refugees rather than by refugees. And so I began to get interested in questions of representation because of that. Yeah, so thinking about questions of representation, what sorts of aesthetic representations have you looked into that might be problematic or sort of universalizing this figure of the refugee in a way that takes away from these very individualized experiences? Mm -hmm. Yes. So a lot of the cultural material on refugees in the present moment is visual. So it's in documentary film, it's in photojournalism. We are very interested as a culture in the site of the refugee. What has been harder to retrieve, not impossible to retrieve, but harder to retrieve are the voices of refugees representing their own experiences. And that is has something to do with access to representation by, by refugees. In the representation of the refugees, one sees, whether it's journalistic representations or documentary film or photojournalism, There are certain icons that are, you know, that show up. One of them is the life jacket and the lifeboat. So I just finished an article writing about iconographic representation of life jackets and lifeboats. They've become, especially in Europe, a shorthand for the refugee and have appeared throughout Europe in various kinds of art installations. Ai Weiwei, the Chinese dissident artist, is one of the major figures who has used the life jacket, but but others have. There was an exhibition in London outside the parliament with more than a thousand life jackets. And people have come to identify the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean with the life jacket and with the lifeboat. So that's something that I've been writing about and thinking about. In terms of border migration in the United States, one of the things that I've noticed is the story of people crossing the Rio Grande, and that becomes a kind of central point in the representation. A lot of those stories actually have them going into the water, sort of losing their way, and then coming out the other side of the water. And I relate that to something that you see in the, in the representations of maritime refugees, which is a moment in which they lose their way, they're floating under the sun, and there's this, what I talk about as a kind of sublime moment in which everything else is collapsed around them, the nations that they come from, the nations that they're going to, and they exist alone with the natural elements. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And I think that what we're kind of moving towards is is an understanding of, you know, within these representations, you know, aesthetics play a really strong role. I think as you as as you wrote in the in in the piece that we read in preparation for this interview was part and parcel with, you know, doing advocacy, right? Yes. So like the aesthetics mm-hmm. play a very mm-hmm. strong role in generating the kind of political force uh, right. that's required for mm-hmm. that ad. And and I think it's it's interesting too to kind of contrast 
these kinds of representations that you're talking about with, you know, because we're talking so much about about water and flotation, people in discourse analysis who study, you know, the media critically have focused a lot on how conceptual metaphors of water and particular or natural disasters, particularly doing dealing with water, are used to describe immigrants and refugees in general. You know, so right. there's there's a flood of immigrants uh, coming to the border. Uh, immigration offices have been inundated with with right. refugee applicants. Like there right. there are myriad examples of how this works. So so I'm kind of curious about your perspective on how these images and these representations can be used for advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, rather than for you know what they typically are used for in the media seems to be kind of demonization and dehumanization right. yeah. so so how, do, how does that function as you see it yeah I think that Ai Weiwei is a great example of someone who has tried to reclaim a water metaphor he works around the idea of flow and that there's a natural human flow throughout the globe and that borders and boundaries are just artificially impeding those flows which then find their way in and through anyway And so he takes these ideas. One of the interesting things about representations of of refugees is that sometimes the same imagery is mobilized by people of two political sides. So the water is a great example. You know, are refugees moving like a flood or inundating the country? Or is there something natural to the flow of refugees? One of the uh, challenges around representing refugees is that it is an international legal category and it is a political category. And so the individual lives, the diverse experiences of different people are collapsed into this judicial category as a way to give them agency on an international stage, to to allow them to claim asylum and such. At the same time, something is lost as they collapse the category of different diverse experiences into the refugee, you know, in in, uh, quotations. And so when people are representing refugees, even as their advocates, there's a tendency to create this universal figure. And it is a universal figure of suffering, often one without history, because advocates are appealing to, especially Western audiences, on the basis of shared humanity. Ai Weiwei does this himself. Some have criticized that aestheticization and that universalization. But one of the things I'm trying to do is to try to read sympathetically with the kind of political aesthetic Mm. and to try to understand the ways that aesthetics can move and objects that are aestheticized can move people to action. I use Judith Butler in thinking about how to pull places together and to understand two geographies and two different contexts in proximity to each other, even when they're at a global distance. And I feel like that's some of the work that aestheticization, the political aesthetics of refugees, is doing. Great. So in thinking about some of those objects or examples, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the different sort of affective qualities behind them. Mm -hmm. So you talk a little bit about hope or rendering those in survivalist terms. So in moving away from some of this visual imagery, uh, what does looking to those objects themselves kind of offer for us in in terms of understanding or engaging with with this refugee discourse at a different level? 
Yeah, so a lot of the representations of refugees have been the objects associated with them. So that includes the life jackets that I mentioned, but also things like the shoes of refugees, the things they carried in plastic bags as they as they crossed the water, the clothes that they wore. And people are moved by the objects because they bear traces of the people that had them before. Mm -hmm. So in a way, those objects are supplanting and replacing those people, but they gain a kind of mobility that sometimes the people do not. So, you know, literally uh, an exhibition can travel circuits that a detainee cannot. Wow, that's pretty stark to kind of think about. Yeah. But On the other hand, because they are evocative, because they are affective objects, they can carry reminders of the people that wore them. They tell a story in a different way than a narrative, but at the same time, I I think there's value to the kinds of stories that they can tell as Mm -hmm. affective objects. Yeah, and and I was wondering, I was really fascinated in how you were drawing on Judith Butler's work there in in terms of collapsing space, you know, between uh, people who might otherwise be, you know, kind of separated from this issue, you know, uh, um, I mean, you know, for people who, you know, we're, we're, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we're generally very far away from the border, although we do have, you know, refugee communities here in the city, as well as, you know, in various other places around us. But for a lot of people, these things might seem a little bit removed. Right. So, so right. I was wondering if you could talk more about what, about that effect of collapsing mm-hmm. places or, mm-hmm. or shortening the distance between, you know, people who are seeing these representations and, uh, you know, the people who they are meant to represent. Right. There's a a great part in Jam Katsia's work, Waiting for the Barbarians, the novel, where he talks about the difference between having a baby cry under your window or not cry under your window and the difference in, in the ways that that affects your desire to do anything Mm -hmm. about the crying baby or about um, anyone who's suffering And so one of the challenges for people with humanitarian interests and refugees is the fact that sometimes the suffering is not proximate and therefore the willingness to be engaged is not as strong. And so I think this is the role that representation and art really can play is that it can move places, places in the sense of locations that are invested with cultural and social and political histories. It can move places next to each other. In, in a way, that's what we do when we read. We move to another place. A lot of my work relates to transportation, to transport. But reading is really a form of transport. You know, it transports you to another place. And so... At its best, political art can transport you and can transport places by by pulling them together. And so what was distant becomes proximate. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thinking about the sort of trans-temporal and trans-historical aspects of literature helping you invest in these movements. And I was thinking, too, about some of the other ways that literature in particular has traditionally represented these modes of travel. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the sort of tradition that exists in these cultural objects in the way of seeing the the flaneur or cosmopolitanism in contrast to 
the modes of movement and mobility that, that you're thinking about. Yeah, so the Flaneur is a very relaxed person <laughs> and walks through the city observing and thinking. And that figure, you know, has has been the figure of modernity, the figure, but it is a figure of privilege that is that is strolling and walking through the city. The migrant moves much differently. The migrant also moves through the city, sometimes moves across, you know, non-city spaces as well. But that movement is not identical to the, the movement of the flaneur in the sense that there is no leisure. That's not to say there's no experience or place or no observation. There is, but it can, it can have a very different relation to the place that it's in. Sometimes it doesn't have access, the access of the flaneur to all the parts of the city. Mm. So that's one of the ways that I relate the migrant moving to other kinds of movement that has been theorized. Another theorist that I draw on is Guy Debord's idea of derive, where he's talking about drifting through the city and the kinds of circuits of mobility that contain us in our daily lives. So for example, we might move between our office and the grocery store and our home or our office in the cafe and our home over and over and over again in a kind of current. Mm. And Guy Debord suggests that we play with that, that we push out of that current, that we change the direction and, and find ways, different points of entry and exit to it. His perspective is is one that I find useful, even though it's coming from a very different agenda. I think that it's useful to think about how refugees and migrants are drifting within global spaces in currents that are not the same as vectors. So if one thinks of a vector as a boat that's moving from one port to the other uh, with a, you know, a set of commodities and global trade, mm-hmm or an airplane that's taking off from Paris and going to Pittsburgh, how the refugee is moving is less of a vector and more lateral. It has moments of stasis. It has moments of immobility. And yet, like Guy Debord's drift, it also has a current. It's moving along the lines of global forces. So if I could, I would do a digital project that mapped this. But to do such a digital project, I think you really have to tell the stories of that movement, because I think that's really where what is of interest is not necessarily just the directionality and the map of movement, but also the ways that people relate to the spaces that they're in. That's told in the stories, that's told in the literature. I'm really fascinated by that concept of drift and particularly how you were you were really evocatively illustrating how there are you know drift occurs because of currents mm-hmm. and and there's this notion of you know that these currents are are sometimes things that are outside of or well probably most often things that are outside of our control right they are. They are, um, yeah. yeah so we you know i mean for like for for us we mm-hmm. drift you know to the office because we need to make money in order right. to survive yeah. like this is a it's a mobility that has mm-hmm. a has a real you know material purpose right. for survival mm-hmm. and you know i mean with 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 migrants it's you know it's it's 
on a higher ge- geopolitical level right. that those currents are generated, of mm-hmm. course, by, you know, by all sorts of different forces, by destabilization yeah. uh, within a country. So I guess I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about about that concept of currents and mm-hmm. where where a lot of those come from, how they're best theorized, or how we can best think about those as you know things that pre-exist people who move or mobile subjects. I mm-hmm. guess we might say. How do you think about currents in your work? So it was an epiphany for me to to begin to think about the relationship between currents and drift, and it was the work of a geographer, Kimberly Peters, who's who uh, tuned me into thinking about the fact that there are currents in drift and that they were actually used during the period of slavery to mobilize the ships on circular trade, that they harnessed current, currents. And I think it's a great way to understand the forces of history, experiences, trajectories, trajectories, uh, a way to understand trajectories in which there is sort of both no agency and yet there is cause. Or a lot of work has been interested in retrieving agency or locating agency for people who appear to have none. And there might be other ways to think about why people do the things they do without getting stuck in the binary between determinism and agency. And current is one way to visualize that. And I think that if I were to try to name what makes a current, there are larger forces like visas, transportation options, like, for example, a refugee might stow away in the back of a lorry in the UK to try to make it to Britain over the border and end up somewhere else. And that happens fairly frequently because they don't really have the timetables and whatnot. They just get in the back of a truck and follow it where it goes. So one could think about the map of transport and trade as the current and the refugee as drifting along that current. But I think there are other ones that might be less infrastructural, something like why do people end up, for example, communities of immigrants end up in the same place? It's because their friends and family are there. So people move to a place that they know someone or they know of someone. And those kinds of forces or currents are ones that are affective structures, kinship and those kinds of things, and less about socio-political forces. I think it's always important to think about why people, I teach a course on love, and I, I think it's important to think about why do people do the things that they do in ways that are not strictly about socio-political economic forces? So in thinking, too, about the various currents and, and where refugees are sort of figured or actualized in, in common visual culture, I'm thinking, too, about these these moments of waiting and how currents might figure into that. Yes. And even the ways that we might consider exploring agency in these moments that we customarily view as a sort of inactive or passive experience. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about 
these moments of stasis and how we might be able to reconfigure those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. David Bissell talks about waiting. He's a geographer from Australia and talks about how there might be more going on as we wait than we think. We think of it as a gap. But actually, first of all, unfortunately, most of uh, a lot of our day is spent waiting time wise. But also we are doing things. We are checking our phones. We're on our laptops. We're, you know, daydreaming, which is doing something as well. Mm So there is a way to think about waiting as productive time. For the refugee, the waiting is different in the sense that the ending is indeterminate. For a refugee in detention, there, there isn't as much, you know, the, the, the duration is not set in the same kind of way as presumably the doctor will ultimately come out and see us. For the refugee, they don't know if the doctor will ultimately come out and see them. And so that in a way is different. But I can think of one cultural project that tried to reimagine waiting in a different way. There has been a movement associated with the publication of two book collections called Refugee Tales Mm. in the UK. And what they did is they walked through Britain following the model of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales telling stories as told to stories of detainees. So they took the stories that were immobilized by civic structures, by governmental structures. They passed them, those stories, to an author. These are fairly famous, well-known authors. A lot of them themselves immigrants, though not all. Some of them refugees who have passed over to a more established place. And then they made them mobile by moving out. They also made them public in that way and sort of took something that was in this space of stasis, which is the detention cell, and made it public and made it heard. And I think that that's a really interesting way to try to, to mobilize a space through art in which there is enforced stasis. So I wanted to ask a, a kind of a broader question about the overall sort of, I, I guess what I really appreciate about the work that the work that you've shared with us and the, and the work that you've been doing is, is how much it's focused on how, you know, aesthetic representations and particularly affective force can move people, you know, to a position where they, they want to do something, you know, right. to, to advocate for and help people, right. you know, particularly, you know, we, we talked all about all sorts of different kinds of refugees and, uh, and migrants all the way from, you know, people who are, you know, traveling on the Mediterranean uh, to, you know, people who are in detention camps at the U.S. southern border right now. And I ask this question because it's something that I personally struggle with a lot because because I also think a lot about how there is a whole other subset of affective energy that seems to be mobilizing people towards exclusion and ostracization of the other, you know, which is embodied by, you know, the migrant, the refugee, Mm -hmm. you know, for a variety of other. I mean, it's I mean, the clearest embodiment is the current regime that we have here mm-hmm. in the United States, mm-hmm. which in many ways, at least to me, does seem to be fueled by a very strong emotional and affective energy to that contrary. Mm-hmm. So I guess, the, and and forgive me if this feels like way too broad of a question, but but do you, do you see ways that the kinds of mobilizing advocacy-based affects that comes from these kinds of cultural representations, do you, do you see a way that that can help combat some of the other kinds of affective forces that exist that are pushing for 
very punitive and frankly, uh, frankly, quite horrible policies with regard to refugees. Yeah. So I think that in certain ways, representations of refugees in literature have had a more select audience that would make it harder for them to be places of, of mobilization for change for a community that essentially didn't read them. That's not to say I don't think they have a very, you know, powerful force or a powerful influence, but I think that there's a limited access to those representations. I think the media and photo documentary is a stronger space for that kind of populist politics. I'm thinking of the image of Alan Kurdi, the boy who drowned on the shores of, of Lesbos, and the ways that that image circulated even in spaces that wouldn't read, for example, a refugee novel, and the ways that people understood the boy as someone who could be like their own child. Ai Weiwei has, I think he captioned it, uh, humanity washed ashore, mm. but the idea that one shares a humanity with a refugee is a site for potential political change. And so I do think, I do think there is a potential. I, I think even more than that, to think about how proximity can happen. So I, I was arguing that art can make places proximate, but even better is integration of actual people into the same spaces, into the same schools, into the same towns, because people, I feel, have a harder time hating someone than they, that they know versus a stranger. And so the more that that actual proximity can take place, I think that's that's really the site for change. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I think I think that actually is kind of a nice note to end it on. <laughs> really, that's yeah. We want to say once again, Marion Aggie, Dr. Marion Aguiar, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we really appreciate all your insights on Reverb today. Thank you for inviting me to speak. No problem. All right, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced by Benjamin Williams and Alex Helberg, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers are Calvin Pollock and Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.